You know, most people didn't call her Lottie. Her name was Charlotte, Charlotte Moon. Once I learned about her, she really captured my imagination. She actually broke up an engagement because the guy wasn't focused on seeing good news go to people who hadn't received good news. She went to a nowhere place and she gave away her life. And nobody could forget her, even though she went to forgotten places. It's remarkable how in giving as you do, you touch the lives of those who would never, never know good news except through our partnership. There's an autistic school that we're working with and the woman got saved and she has autistic children. In the morning when the sun comes up from the east, the Shiva temple literally cast its shadow from a block and a half away, it's a real tall temple, it cast its shadow over this school. That temple has been there for years, 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 but that temple never helped. Temples receive money, they don't give money. And only when Jesus showed up are those children helped. And it's just like, that's the story around the world. You can be in the shadow of, you know, different worship things or anything, but when Jesus shows up in the most God-forsaken, isolated things, all of a sudden, good starts happening, beauty starts happening, transformation starts happening. And that's it. The multiplication mode of what God has given us, giving to others, that's everything. Church, that is uh, Brother Tom, who preached here a few weeks ago. He's uh, ministering in a city in India called New Delhi, and it's a city of 17 to 18 million people. Now, that is more people in one city than live in the states of North and South Carolina and most of Tennessee, one city. So, uh, so significant partnership we have with him. Uh, we, we start, we're starting our week of prayer for four missions. I'm just going to take three minutes and kind of, this is our, the beginning of emphasis for world missions. As far as collecting, it's a privilege for us. 58% or so of the budget that supports 4,700 missionaries comes from the world Christmas offering that we give to. So it's very important and something we can joyfully participate in because it takes the gospel to the ends of the earth, to many places where the gospel's never been preached. But it's named after a woman named Lottie Moon. Her name was Charlotte Diggs Moon. I'm going to give you a brief biographical sketch, and then we're going to go to the passage I'm preaching on. But some of you say, well, what's, what's this Lottie Moon? Lottie Moon was a young woman raised in Virginia. She was coming to her maturity during the war between the states. Uh, 
after the war, or, uh, she went to a place called the Albemarle Academy, I think my memory's right, uh, where she was a student. She was brilliant. There was a man teaching there named John Broadus, who said in all my years of teaching, uh, she was the, probably the most intelligent student I ever taught. And he taught at that academy, went on to teach at Southern Seminary in now Louisville, Kentucky. He wrote the definitive book on preaching. Uh, he's a wonderful man in his own right. But Lottie Moon was uh, a non-believer, and her friends kept talking to her about Jesus and the forgiveness of sins and the need for a Savior, and she kept stiff-arming them, and they would have meetings and invite her, and she would not come. And so some friends played with her one night to consider Christ, and she went to bed, and she said that she tried to go to sleep, but there was a barking dog next door that would not be quiet. And she said the barking dog kept her up, and the Bible verses she had heard kept hitting her mind. And sometime in the morning hours, she committed her life to Christ. And I've always laughed because of a barking dog and friends that shared Christ with her. But she goes to China, to the outback of China. She's there for eight years all by herself, living in a very difficult place in kind of a mud hut and and a wintry setting five months out of the year. And she developed a correspondence with a brilliant young language professor named Crawford Toy. And Crawford Toys, they corresponded and write and wrote each other. They, they really fell in love. And he proposed marriage to her. He said, I will do anything to be married to you. And as they talked, he came into his own spiritual life to a place where he did not believe some of the central themes of the Bible. He started questioning them. And he was a professor of Semitic languages at Southern Seminary. And Southern Seminary, with great sorrow, had to ask him to resign because he was no longer walking in the truth of the Scripture And the president of Southern Seminary walked him to the train station as he left to to go and teach at Harvard. And he said, Toy, I would give my right arm if you were where you were 10 years ago and you would not be moved. And he goes to Harvard and he abandons the faith, becomes Unitarian. But in the midst of all that, Lottie Moon, in incredible loneliness, writes to Crawford Toy and says, I cannot commit my life to or follow the leadership of a man who doesn't honor the authority of the Word of God in his life. And she breaks it off. It's amazing. But she died in China, and her name was Lottie Moon. She's supposedly four, three to four, four, a very small woman, but wonderfully used to the Lord. She was faithful. So it's named after Lottie Moon. So this week, there are people on your prayer guide who are all part of or have been part of our church, and it's a privilege to pray for them. Today, we are praying for Joel and Reagan, who are ministering in the Middle East. He's a physician. They have numerous children, and they're there teaching their children, reaching out to their neighbors, and using his medical work as a platform to reach people for Christ as he trains younger physicians and works with people. So let's pray for them, and then we'll go to the text. Lord, we thank you that we can be involved in what you're doing around the world through prayer and through intentional friendships and through giving. And we pray for Joel and Reagan. We ask that you would take his giftedness as a physician and their giftedness and opening their homes to people around them who do not know you, and you would use that to impact their country, their neighborhood, their workplace with the gospel of Christ. That as he trains young physicians, he'll be able to talk to them about the one who is the bread of life, the one who is the savior of sins. So we bless you. We thank you, Lord. Um, and we ask you to bless us now in Jesus' name. Amen.
so all of us have experienced this. If you've ever driven, you're going through a major city, and it's during the time of the day. You've timed it so you'll hit the major city when the traffic flow is moving, and you would not be involved in gridlock. And so you're going through the major city, and all of a sudden, everything comes to a screeching halt, and you sit in traffic forever. And you're thinking, this is the middle of the day. Boy, there's no reason we should have gridlock. And then you think, well, there's probably an accident. And probably you pray a prayer for those involved in the accident. There's been any injury. And both lines, all four lines, creep and they crawl. And, they, and so you, maybe you can see ahead and you're able to see cars. And you're thinking, what's going on? You get close and about 40 yards out. You realize it's, 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 a, it's a fender bender. And you see the people standing there talking to a policeman, no ambulance, everybody's fine. And you think, I cannot believe I've sat in line for 40 minutes because there's a fender bender and my fellow motorists just don't go by the, 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 the accident. And as you get close to it, you know what you do? You take your foot off the gas and you look. Wow. Oh, that's, that's a bad den. That's going to take a oh, that's That's a new car. That's going to be bad. It happens all the time. And you're called or what? Rubbernecker. Rubbernecker. And whenever there's a situation or a crowd or a movement or a fair or whatever, there are rubberneckers. I mean, that's, that's why when you go to the Coastal Carolina Fair, you're a what? You're a rubbernecker. There's no reason to go to the Coastal Carolina Fair. You know, the food's not good for you. The crowds are everywhere. The rides are not that much fun but you go because you want to be a rubber necker. That's the only reason to go to the Coastal Carolina Fair. But in, we're going to look at a passage today where we see various people, including rubber neckers. We're going to be in Mark chapter 2. Jesus has begun his public ministry. He's gone through his temptation in the wilderness. He's preaching the word. He's healing people. In fact, it says in chapter 1 and verse 32 that, that even at sundown they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons, and the whole city was gathered together at the door, and he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons, and he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. And rising very early in the morning while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, Let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there, for that is why I have come. And he went out throughout all of Judea, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. And then he heals a leper of his leprosy. And he, he has this public ministry of, of teaching and healing and casting out demons. And he causes a stir wherever he goes. When we come to chapter 2, our focal passage, verses 1 through 12, a wonderful passage that's universally known by many people as they study the Bible. And it's an incredible story. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home and many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, my son, your sins are forgiven. 
Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like this? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately, Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God saying, we have never seen anything like this. So there, there are various people there. There are the people drawn by the crowd, the rubberneckers. There are people there who were the disciples in his early ministry, hanging on every word of Jesus. There are some people there who were drawn to it, but they're beginning to question in their hearts, is this man really who I think he might be? And so they're, 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 they're on the precipice, the door of entering into the kingdom. And then there are the scribes, and Luke says scribes and Pharisees, and they were sitting there. See, people were pressing into the house, and trying. they were milling about outside, but there was a privileged position for the scribes and the Pharisees because they were the people who guarded the orthodoxy of the Jewish faith, and so they were sitting there listening to this teacher who taught with authority, trying to catch him in some type of theological inconsistency. So you have the rubberneckers, the somewhat rubberneckers, the disciples, and the scribes and the Pharisees. And it's a massive group of people. As the word spread around that the man who's casting out demons and healing people and teaching with authority is here, they went from little hut to little hut to little village to little village. They came into Capernaum, and they couldn't even get, get, get into the room, people outside the house, straining to hear anything that was said. And then in this context, we're introduced in verse 3 and 4 to an incredible story. There was a man who was paralyzed. We don't know why. We don't know how long. It may have been from birth. It may have been because of an accident. It may have been because of sin. We, we don't know. But he's paralyzed. But this man is blessed because he has friends. He has four friends who talk to him and say, we, we've heard about this teacher. You've tried everything. It hasn't worked. But, but there is a teacher coming in the area, and the rumor is he can heal people. And so Jesus is there teaching the Word of God to them. And they, they, they said, let's do this. Let's, let's put our friend on a pallet, and let's get each of us on all four corners, and let's carry him in, and let him be seen by this teacher, healer, man who casts out demons. And that's what they do. They put him on a pallet, and they go into Capernaum, and they see the crowds going across the hill, and they come to the brow of the hill, and they look, and as they look over the brow of the hill, their hearts sink because there is a house, but it's surrounded by hundreds of people. And they say, we, we can't carry our paralyzed friend into his presence. What are we going to do? I'm just suggesting, one of the men, an enterprising guy, says, no, what we could do. He says, I've, I've put some roofs on these houses. They're just roofs of, of, of vines covered with mud and held together with some type of cohesive. And it's really to take, easy to take the roof off. We could 
lower him down in front of the teacher. They said, well, I don't know. They said, well, let's try it. So they, they scoured the neighborhood. They got some rope. They found a big ladder. They tied their paralyzed friend to the pallet so he wouldn't fall. And then these four men struggled and groaned and pulled him up the ladder. And when he was on the roof, a couple of guys started busting through the roof. Jesus is teaching. All of a sudden, the roof starts falling in. People started calling out, what's going on? What's going on? What's happening? And about that time, part of the roof is removed. And one of the men probably said, good teacher, please forgive the interruption. But our friend needs to see you. And at that point, all of a sudden, a man starts coming down on a pallet with four ropes held by four men who are perspiring. Maybe perspiration is dropping down as the friend comes, and everybody becomes stone silent. It's an incredible story. And as I think about it, just a, a couple of thoughts. And then I think the point of the story, this man on the pallet, if he was not healed, was a rich man. He had four friends who were willing to go to the wall and to look stupid for their buddy. Four men who wanted to walk with him. Four men committed to him. And man to man, often on Friday morning, I ask the guys there, I say, you, that's, I'll say, men, who are your two o'clock in the morning Waffle House friends? And by that I mean, who are the, who are the people you call when your world hits the skids? Who are the people you call when it just gets harder to walk than you can walk? Who, who are the people you go to, to to share? Who are the people that support you and walk with you? Who are your two o'clock in the morning Waffle House friends or wherever you want to go? Friends. This, this guy had at least four. Now, I, I, think, about, I think about this. To, to, to be a friend, you've got to build into people. So obviously this man who was paralyzed had built into the life of other people in such a fashion that they had a deep love for him. That's the first point. He had friends. The second point is this, is that these, these friends had embryonic small faith because they had limited knowledge of Jesus. So, so Jesus is just starting his public ministry. The only thing they know about him is he is a teacher who teaches with authority and he heals people. But, but they had enough understanding to realize that the only hope for our paralyzed friend is to get him in the presence of Jesus. His only hope is to get in the presence of Christ. And there's a verse, Jonathan Edwards, one of my heroes. This is one of his favorite verses, and it's a verse that I've thought about a lot, but it's talking about John the Baptist and the concept around John the Baptist. And Jesus says this, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and violent men take it by force. I'm thinking, what? He doesn't mean violent men like men going in and disrupting. He's thinking men who are passionate and pressing and going for it. Take it by force. And these men fit the bill of Matthew 11, verse 12. They were men who were passionate about getting their friend in the presence of Jesus. And the second thing about these guys, I thought, they were willing to look foolish. Imagine the conversation. We're going to take the roof off, lower them down. They're going, to, ah. One of the guys may say, you know, we're going to really look stupid. If the teacher says, what are you doing? You're bothering me. Good grief. And he's going to be in front of these educated scribes and Pharisees. And 
and it's going to be in front of these people from Capernaum, and Capernaum is more wealthy than our little village, and they're going to say, oh, no, they're from the backwater, if they were. No, they were willing to look foolish for their friend. And I thought, am I willing to look foolish for people that I care for? How many times have I not spoken the name of Jesus or spoken the gospel when I should have because I thought, you know, they can't understand or they're not going to get it or I don't want to look like a back, whatever. Am I willing to be a fool for Jesus? Because see, these men understood that there's hope when you get in the presence of Jesus. And this is what blows my mind. So, so here they are. They said they know very little about Jesus. They said there's, there's hope when you get in the presence of this teacher. And, and then just a half hour later, they said, man, there really is hope because this great teacher can forgive sins. Wow. He can forgive sins. But then three years later, that is said, quantum leap forward. There's hope in the presence of Jesus because he is God in the flesh who died on the cross for my sins, rose victorious over death, ascended into heaven, and has poured out the Holy Spirit on his church. He's God. He said before Abraham was, I am. He said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He's God. So I, I say to you, I say to myself, there's healing, there's empowerment, there's joy, there's refuge in the name of Jesus. There's shalom in his name, the webbing together of justice, fulfillment, and hope that comes only under the banner of Christ. And these men knew that. And quite frankly, I need friends who do that. Taking a step further, there are times when as a follower of Jesus, you're so tired, you're so beat up by life, you're so discouraged. Maybe it's a child, maybe it's your marriage, maybe it's your job, maybe you've been forsaken by some friends, whatever, that, that you try to get in the presence of the Lord and it's just hard. You feel like you're walking in quick, dry cement. And you need people in your life who will walk with you and listen to you and pray with you and help get you in the presence of the one who forgives sin and who heals and empowers and who gives grace. That's what the church should be about. Faithful, resolute, caring brothers and sisters. This man was wealthy before his sins were forgiven before he was healed. And then this is what happens. They lower him down. There's a hush. And Jesus looks at him and either he says something that goes to the core of the truth of the universe or he says something that is unbelievably callous. I'm vote for A. He says, my son, your sins are forgiven. And I think what he's saying is that is this, is this paralysis, cancer, heart disease can be cured. We pray for healings, but eventually we will die. 
But the issue that I must deal with today and tomorrow and in eternity is this. Are my sins forgiven before a holy God? And so Jesus says, my son, your sins are forgiven. And then there was a cataclysmic earthquake in the hearts of the Pharisees and the scribes, and they thought within themselves, not out loud, they thought within themselves, this man is blaspheming. Who is this guy? Only God Almighty can forgive sins. He speaks horrible blasphemy. And Jesus, perceiving in his heart what they were thinking, he's God, says to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Then he said to the paralyzed man, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he did. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that all were amazed and glorified God saying, we have never seen anything like this. My son, your sins are forgiven. Jesus is walking under the shadow of the cross as he says, I am the one who will deal with your sin issue on the cross. I am the one who will be the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It's an incredible story. My son, your sins are forgiven. So yes, we need healings. Yes, we need God's power in our lives. But but the, the ultimate thing that we need, the ultimate issue is, can my sins be forgiven? And when people look at that issue, they they, they fly into several areas. One is that they go to self-effort, self-effort, self-effort. To try to please God, to try to make amends with God. And I've been reading a book entitled The Black Flags or The Rise of ISIS. And where did ISIS come from and how did it happen? This is a man named Zarqawi who was killed four years ago. Zarqawi was uh, a Jordanian raised in an industrial city. He was a thug, a part of a gang as a young man, and he was a thief, and he went to prison because of theft, and we think because he sexually molested a woman. And while he was in prison, um, he fell into um, a fellowship with some radical Islamic men. He embraced Wahhabism. He gets out of prison and he offers his services to Osama bin Laden and bin Laden knows that he's such a a disreputable fellow that he keeps him at arm's distance and eventually because of his bravery and his absolute obedience, Sarkawi is embraced by Obama and becomes part of the Al-Qaeda fight in Iraq that eventually morphed into ISIS. And the book says the two leading figures in ISIS are al-Baghdadi, who is the caliphate in that part of the world, the ISIS leader and Zarqawi, who was, of course, killed four years ago. But in the book, it says, it talked about how he would fight in battle. And his men were amazed at his bravery. But this is what it says. I thought it was very interesting. It says that he, Zarqawi, would say, because of the things I did in my past, nothing could bring Allah to forgive me unless I become a martyr. And so what 
he taught and lived is that the only way to be accepted by God is to become a martyr. See, ISIS doesn't care about helping the poor, establishing hospitals, educating children, economic prosperity and viability. They care, they care only about extending Sharia law and living in such a way that they can die as martyrs. Their worldview is totally at odds with anything that we would teach as Christians. It's a sad, but it's all about self-justification. And I thought about many people in our culture, they're not involved in radical, horrific violence that cascaded down on California this week. It's so sad. But, but, but they are involved in justifying themselves, trying to live like this and trying to do that to earn God's favor. The Bible says you cannot do that. The Bible says all of sin comes short of the glory of God. All we like sheep have gone astray. Like a sheep, we've just gone astray. But the Lord has laid on the good shepherd the sin that should fall upon us. And so that's why Jesus could look at this man paralyzed and he says, my son, hear the tenderness there? Your sins are forgiven. I love it. And, and then another group, self-justification, but also the uh, people who numb themselves with material possessions or alcohol abuse or whatever, and, 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 they, and they try to numb themselves to the reality of their own life. Um, and so they just, they, they try to clean themselves up and be good enough to somehow merit favor. You can never do that. And so you, you, you numb yourself to the reality of what you know to be true in your heart, that on my very best day, on the very best hour, on my very best day, I need a Savior. I do. And so, so this ultimately will lead to despair and discouragement and a sense of cynicism. I was reading a book recently about, about this woman. Um, I just lost her photograph. Anyway, her name is Sylvia Plath. And Sylvia Plath was um, a brilliant woman, a well-known, that's not her, believe me. No. <laughs> Uh, Sylvia Plath died when she was 30. That lady saw 30 a long time ago. <laughs> but that's Hetty Green. I was not going to use that anyway. Uh, so Sylvia Plath was a, she was, she was a brilliant woman, went to Smith, studied at Cambridge, uh, incredible poet. Uh, she married one of the leading poets of Great Britain from the 20th century, a man named Ted Hughes. And, uh, she was married and had two children. And then uh, she found out that her husband was having an affair with a, a German woman who he had met in his work, another affair, and it pushed her over the edge. And so in February of 1963, she tiptoed into her children's room and left some bread and milk and opened a window and then closed the door and sealed it with duct tape. And went to the kitchen and turned on the gas and put her head in the stove and committed suicide. Earlier she had written this. this is she's, of course, she's a poet. She's incredibly expressive. She says, outcast on a cold star, unable to feel anything but an awful, helpless numbness. I look down into the warm, earthly world into a nest of lover's beds and baby's cribs and meal tables, all the solid commerce of life in this earth 
and I feel apart, encased in a wall of glass. So what she's saying is, I look around me and I see lovers talking and I see families eating at meals and, and laughing and, and, and I see babies' cribs. But I just feel as if I'm encased in a wall of glass and I can see it and I can try to touch it, but I cannot get there. Despair. There's no hope. She'd gone to a writer's call in upper state New York two years before, made up of incredibly bright people. And she said, at that point, I'd been told in my life to embrace my weirdness. And I'm thinking, oh, don't embrace your weirdness. Go to the cross with your weirdness, because we all have it. Deal with this. And so I think this, and I ask, I ask you, I ask myself, where, where do you go? Where do you go when you feel forsaken? Where do you go when you feel like you've been done wrong? Where do you feel when you go that things are not as they should be? Where do you go when maybe your friends you feel like forsake you? Where do you go with your hurt? Where do you go with your anguish? Where do you go with your bitterness and, 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 and the, the, the issue of forgiving people? Where do you go? Will you pray the Lord's Prayer? Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. You go to the cross. There's a passage in Titus written by Paul, and it says this. It says, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. These are believers. And, and to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. That's a tall order. Be submissive, be kind, be gracious, be willing to show uh, do every good work, speak no evil, avoid quarreling, be gentle, show perfect courtesy. Next verse. For, I love this, for we ourselves were once foolish and disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But, when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that we're justified by faith. So Paul gives this incredible tall order. Be kind, be gentle, don't be disruptive, be submissive, be willing to do good. We say, come on, Paul, for... We ourselves were one at one time disobedient and slaves to passions, but Jesus saved us. God was rich in mercy. That's where you go with your hurt. That's where you go with your numbness. That's where you go when you feel like you're encased in the glass wall and you can't get out. You go to the cross. And you pray, give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sinned against us. Mm. My son, my daughter, your sins are forgiven. In 1944, the German army was on its last gasp. December. And Hitler came up with a strategy. There was some forest in Belgium 
that were dense and there were very few Americans. He was going to drive his armored divisions through those forests, separate the armies, and beat them, the American armies. It was called the Battle of the Bulge. The, we didn't have many troops there because we said there's no way an armored division can get through there. It's just a tangled mess of deep forests, but the Germans did. Surprise attack. 20,000 American soldiers were killed. Many were encircled, became prisoners of war. It was a devastating blow. We recovered. Men fought bravely. It was a last gasp. He was hoping to, draw, to, to make a last gasp effort and end the war. When in the melee of all the people running through the forest and people in circles and doing that, the Germans, to find out what was going on, got some incredibly gifted English speakers to dress like American soldiers, and they took American jeeps, they captured, and they go from checkpoint to checkpoint, checking on troop movements, and we understood that, and so the American GIs uh, came up with this system. They said, we'll ask the people going through the checkpoints about American cultural knowledge. And so there was a guy named David Niven. Some of us are old remember David Niven. He was a famous English actor. And David Niven was going through a checkpoint. And they asked him a question about who won the 1943 World Series. And he said, I, I, I don't know who won the 1943 World Series, but I did act with Ginger Rogers in The Bachelor Mother. And he said, you're David Niven. He says, yes, I'm in the British Army. Come on through. So he came through. An American general came through, and they stopped his Jeep, and they said, are the Chicago Cubs in the American League or the National League? He said, I don't know. He says, the American League. They arrested him at gunpoint and held him for five hours. True story. Because he didn't know the Cubs, by the way, are in the National League. You know, so if you ever stop by Highway Patrolman, the answer is National League, all right? Phil Marshall Montgomery, the highest decorated British Army officer in the Second World War, was going through a checkpoint. Some GI stopped him. Didn't recognize him. They're probably from the upstate of South Carolina. And they said, they said, uh, asked him some question. He said, I don't, I don't know. He said, driver, go on. I can't put up with this. They blew his tires out with their, with their guns, which probably made Eisenhower smile and pat and hoot with laughter because Montgomery was stopped like that. But I, I thought about these checkpoints and the secret words and the questions. There is, there is one answer to who forgives sin. The name is Jesus. It's Jesus. Who forgives sin? It's Emmanuel, God with us. The eternal God who became a little baby and lived a perfect life and forgave sins. And that's the glory of the Christmas message. And that's the message we need to speak and preach. And so enter into people's lives. And let me just give this as a, as a brief statement. As next week we have our Christmas concert. The, the Christmas concert that our choir and orchestra and praise band does is so good. Next, this year we're having it here. Saturday night I think is sold out. Sunday afternoon at 3 o'clock. Sunday night at 7 o'clock. Our choir and the old country singers, our orchestra, our praise band, it's going to be a glorious experience. Come and bring a friend. And pray for, pray for God to really use that, to speak the message of Christ. And other events in our community, we can go and hear the word of Jesus spoken and sung. And, and I'll just say, I just thought of this. So congratulations to Charleston Southern. They, they won a great game yesterday against the Citadel. And I was really not happy going to Charleston Southern because the stadium is small. I thought, we're going to have to stand up. We can't see well. I wish we were going to Johnson Haygood for the stadium. You, could, you know, but, So I get there, and uh, 
I kind of have a bad attitude. You know, I said, we could, these things, I can't see very well. And then they said, we're going to open in prayer. And they had a professor from Southeastern Seminary pray. He prayed the gospel. He prayed Jesus. The forgiveness of sins through the work of Jesus. And when it was over, I'll give the guys, I was going to say, okay, let's play all of our games here from now on, you know, because Jesus was spoken. The gospel was spoken. So thanks be to God for, for this school because I want the name Jesus spoken. The wrong team won, but it was a good experience for them, you know. <laughs> anyway. Well, let's pray, and then we're going to have our moderator come forward. And Lord, thank you for this day, and we pray, oh, we pray, that we would be friends to people who are in need, and a friend who understands that there's power and joy and healing and hope when you get in the presence of the matchless Son of God, whose name is Jesus. We thank you, Lord Christ, that you look at us today, and I I just thank you that the forgiveness of sins is something that can never be taken from me. That the forgiveness of sins will be mine and it will grow richer and deeper and in eternity I will think about it and sing about it endlessly. So thank you for that. Thank you, Lord Christ, and in your majesty you looked at this dear paralyzed man and you taught us because you said to him, first and foremost, my son, your sins are forgiven. So as we look at people around us, there's great need, but let us, as we seek to meet needs and love people, realize the greatest need is to hear, my son, my daughter, your sins are forgiven. Thank you that the shadow of the cross fell upon everything you did, Jesus, in your life and your ministry. In Christ's name, amen.